This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. I am excited to begin a new book of the Bible with you guys. We're going to be studying Jesus. The book that we're going through is the the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in it for about 15 weeks, stretched over however many months that is. And what we're doing is we're going to to look at Luke's main theme over all 24 chapters. What is his main theme? And look at 15 different stories that point directly at that theme. Now, Luke is an interesting character. He's fun to kind of get to know. Turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. So Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. When you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke was not uh, one of Jesus's initial disciples. He was the traveling companion. He was the disciple of, and he was the doctor of Paul. So after Jesus got a hold of Paul and Paul witnessed Jesus risen from the dead, and studied his brains out for however long before he started his missionary journeys, Paul begins to travel and he takes Luke with him. And as you read, if if you want to, go read through the book of Acts. You can read how sometimes you're reading about what happened to them, and then suddenly the language will change and it'll say, we did this, or this happened to us, and you know that you're you're reading about something that Luke was personally a part of. And Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. They're actually volume one and volume two of one continuous story. I would really encourage you, as we're starting the series, to begin reading the book of Luke. Uh, that way you're keeping up. We can't cover the, all the incredible stories, the incredible things that Jesus did, the wonderful stories that Luke includes in here for us. So I want you to be able to get all of those in your own study time because we're only going to be able to tackle 15 smaller ones of it. But Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. And it really would have paid off that he was traveling with Paul because often Paul was beaten and bloodied and stoned and terrible things happened to Paul. And Luke got to be right there to nurse him back to health to get back to preaching again. And as you read through the book of Luke, you're going to read more medical terminology, more things about um, people's health than you will in any of the other Gospels. It's Luke that points out that Jesus sweat drops of blood. It's Luke that, po- that points out that when Jesus was stabbed in his side on the cross, that blood and water poured out. He notices those intimate details, those, those details that only a physician would spot. Luke also includes lots of material that the other Gospel writers don't add. Things like Jesus' birth story from Mary's perspective. Uh, other things like the, the parables of the lost son or the parable of uh, the, the prodigal son or um, the good Samaritan. Even the, the story that we covered last week about the, the disciples walking to Emmaus and Jesus kind of coming up and joining their, their party and discussing the Old Testament. None of that's in the other books. That's in Luke alone. Now, Luke is special because he was an outside observer. And he got to travel with Paul, so he got to meet most of the the characters in the New Testament that we would want to meet. He got to know them personally. Because Paul traveled through Ephesus regularly, he got to sit down with John and with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Maybe that's why he has more information about the birth story from her perspective than the others. 
And as an outside observer, he made a choice to research all the things about Jesus, to interview as many people as he could. He probably had the book of Mark, and he probably had the book of Matthew, and he sat down intentionally, as it says in the very first verses of the book of Luke, he sat down to write an orderly account. And he's writing to a man named Theophilus, the great Theophilus. And we don't know who that is, but we know he's a high-ranking officer, probably a Greek, And Luke is trying to convince him to believe in Jesus. And that's the purpose of Luke's gospel. And he writes the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to this unknown Theophilus. Now, Luke's writing is so cool because Luke was so educated that he wrote in very polished Greek. In fact, Luke has been hailed among even secular scholars as one of the most beautiful pieces of Greek literature, of of classical Greek literature. He's been hailed as one of the great classical historians because of the details. One man, one of of the greatest thinkers and historians uh, at the turn of the the 1800s and the 1900s set out on a journey to disprove the New Testament by looking at the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, looking at all the details and all the places, and he set out to disprove it. He thought, there's plenty of geographical details, there's plenty of historical details. All I have to do is study history and go to the places, and I can prove that these are fallacies. And that scholar, Ramsey was his last name, you can go read about him, he set out, and in his searching, he found the places, he found the history, and he became a Christian, and he hailed Luke as one of the great historians of classical history. This is the author that we're sitting down to read. And what Luke does is he sets up Luke chapter one and two almost as an introduction. And what we're gonna pick up tonight is the beginning of chapter three. And it's almost Luke begins his book a second time. Let's take a look. Luke chapter three, verse one. Now, as we go, I want to hold the theme, Luke's theme in the back of our mind. Luke's theme that he will argue and prove for the rest of his book is that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, and he has brought good news to anyone. So we're going to look, Luke's always going to look back. He's the Messiah that was promised, and he's bringing the gospel, but he's not just bringing it to the rich, not just bringing it to the religious, he's bringing it to anyone, the outcast, the marginalized, the people that society looked down on. Jesus was the Messiah who came for them. And if he came for them, then he came for you. And if he came for you, he came for me. That's the beauty of what he is always pointing at. So let's begin Luke chapter three, and it's gonna sound like he's beginning a brand new book. In the 15th year, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now before we go on, that was a lot of names. But Luke is doing something very important here. If you look, we have, we have the emperor of Rome, the most powerful guy currently in the world. This is Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, they found a coin that says that he was the divine son of Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar de- declared himself God. 
So Tiberius Caesar is, is this egomaniac who has de, declared himself the son of a god, right? Then under him, we have Pontius Pilate, who was a violent leader. In fact, not long before Jesus comes on the scene, he had a bunch of Galileans murdered, slaughtered, and mixed their blood in with the Roman sacrifices, just to prove a point. That's Pilate. Then we have these three tetrarchs. We have Herod, we have Philip, his brother, and we have this totally unknown guy named Licinius that history has forgotten. Herod, all, Herod and Philip are incredibly corrupt, incredibly immoral. Herod seduces the wife of his brother Philip, marries her, and then his wife convinces Herod through parading his, his stepdaughter in front of him as a sexual item so that he would kill John. That's the messed up family of Herod. So we have these corrupt rulers, and then we have two high priests that are listed, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it's strange that there's two. The, the Old Testament says that there should only be one high priest who came from the lineage of Aaron, and he is the high priest for life. But right here at the outset, Luke lists two. And it's because there was also corruption even in the high priesthood. Rome had, had taken Annas out of the high priesthood, and Annas maneuvered through bribery to get Caiaphas, his son-in-law, to come and fill the high priesthood so that Annas could kind of rule through the puppet Caiaphas. At this time, the priesthood wasn't even by inheritance of, of generational lines. People, it was political. People were bribing people and maneuvering to get the high priesthood. So what is Luke saying? He's saying right now, the political situation was a guy who calls himself God, a violent governor, and immoral undergovernors, and spiritually, it's the, the high priesthood, the highest position, the man who's closest to God, he himself is wicked and twisted. This is the, this is the landscape. And the high priesthood is the pulse of the nation spiritually. Like if you, if you felt that you had a pulse and the doctor felt your pulse and you had an irregular, unhealthy pulse in your wrist, you wouldn't have a healthy pulse in your neck. Do you follow me? Because the pulse represents the entire body. If you have an unhealthy pulse, you have an unhealthy heart. The very priesthood itself is sick, and it represents the spiritual condition of Israel. And it's this that God steps into. This is the climate, the context that Jesus steps into and right here, the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah, which when you read Luke, you're going to read the, the weird events about how John was born. And what happens? Verse 3, he, John, went into the region around the Jordan, around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh, everyone shall see the salvation of God. Now it's into this 
this crazy climate of corruption on top of wickedness, on top of corruption, politically and spiritually, that God comes to a man, John. And instead of John becoming a priest just like his dad was, John goes rogue into the wilderness by God's appointment. And just like it said of all the Old Testament prophets that the word of the Lord came to them, we suddenly have a New Testament prophet. Do you see, the book of Malachi ends the New Testament. And Malachi says that God's coming and he's gonna send a messenger ahead of him. And then God will come. And then there was 400 years of silence. God stopped speaking. And it's in this climate after 400 years that God breaks the silence. And John the Baptist stands with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament. He is the last of the prophets. And yet he is the prophet who breaks the silence to make way for God himself to step into human history. He has one mission. John has one mission in life, and it's spelled out. He is one who is crying out. But he's crying out in a very specific landscape, in the wilderness. And what is he doing? He's preparing the way for the Lord to make paths straight. Now see, in kings in those days, if a king was going to travel across his nation and visit cities, he would send a herald a crier out ahead of him. And that herald would go into the city and it would, it would announce that the king is on his way. And so everyone would make preparations and they'd get the streets ready and, and their businesses would shut down and they would make all these preparations for the king to come. And one of the main things that they did is they would fix the roads. How, like, I don't know about you guys, but our roads have gotten really bad since we had our freeze and torrential rains. I dented a rim in a pothole on 311 last week. Like our potholes are bad. How much worse would the roads have been then? They would have been so rutted up and messed up. Nothing like the smooth grades that we have now that shed the water off to the sides. Nothing like what we have now. And so the king would come in on smooth, prepared roads. The deep places would be filled in the high places would be leveled. The crooked places would be made straight so that the king could come. And this is John the Baptist's ministry, to prepare the way, to be the herald, to get the roads ready for the king, for the Messiah to come. But John is not looking at a physical wilderness he comes out of the wilderness. His baptism is around the Jordan River in the wilderness. People had to walk miles out into the dry, barren, 120-something degree wilderness to hear John preach. But these things only were representations. They were only metaphors for what John was preaching because John was standing at a time when Israel was spiritually barren, spiritually dry, and when John comes on the scene and says, I'm preparing the way for the Lord, he's not talking about physical roads. He's talking about spiritual hearts that people need to be made ready before the Messiah comes onto the scene. And Luke is so cool because as this great author that he is, he intentionally puts the story of John the Baptist in front of Jesus 
so that he can use John to prepare our hearts spiritually before we get to Jesus. This is done absolutely on purpose. That right now, as we begin to study John and his sermons and his message, we are supposed to look inward and say, is my heart ready? Am I in a place that I'm ready to receive the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Savior, God, in my heart? Am I ready? Are the roads in my life ready? And John sees his calling very clearly. The way a heart is prepared for the Messiah to come is through repentance. Verse 3, he went into all the region around Judea, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he is here to make way for the Lord. How does he prepare the way? He preaches repentance. Let's take a minute. Where are your hearts? I've, I've spent the past week looking at my heart. I've spent most of the day today in prayer looking at my heart. Join me with this. Are your hearts ready for the Lord? Because the Lord doesn't come to the prideful. In fact, I think we may have it on the screen. Isaiah 57, verse 15. God speaks that although he is omnipresent, his presence dwells in a very unique way in two exclusive places. God's presence is everywhere, but he has this certain particular exclusive way that he dwells in two very specific places. This is Isaiah 57, 15. Did we get it up there? Sweet. Look at this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. And where does he inhabit? He inhabits eternity. Bend your mind around that. His location is both directions on the timeline simultaneously. That's where he hangs out. Like I... His location is time itself. Oh, it's just crazy. Whose name is holy. And what does he say? I dwell in the high and holy place. That is heaven, the heaven of heavens. And also with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. What is contrite? Contrite is repentant. To have contrition is to be sorry, to hurt for sin. And what is the lowly in spirit? The lowly in spirit is, is if someone has a whole lot of spirit, they're like sort of arrogant, a little prideful. They're like on top of the world. To be lowly in spirit, to be poor in spirit, means that you do not have spirit. You're, you're bankrupt. We, we come to the Lord saying, God, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing I am hopeless apart from you. God does not dwell with people who have it all together. He does not dwell with the prideful. He doesn't dwell with, the, with whoever thinks they're a superstar. No, make way for the Lord. What is the path? What is the way that prepares a heart? It's a heart that comes with repentance, with a recognition and an acknowledgement 
that we're nothing apart from him. That is the heart that God comes to, that God dwells in. Think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. What is, what is the first thing he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come to the Lord knowing they have nothing to offer. We don't get to buy anything. We, we, there's no reason that God should love us. We have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? For our sin. Why? Because God dwells with the contrite. They're so blessed. You're blessed when you realize that you don't have it all together. You are blessed when you hurt for your sin. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because when we know we've got nothing to offer and we're hurting for our sin, then what does that make us? It makes us humble. It makes us meek. It makes us people that are really easy to get along with. <laughs> it makes us the very kind of people that the Lord loves to be close to. And so those are the blessed. Blessed literally means happy. Those are the happy people. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that upside down? Isn't that backwards? Those are the happy people. And John comes preaching repentance. Make your hearts ready for God. And those who he was looking at on the shore who would know Jesus were the very ones who would repent and be baptized. Those are the ones that Jesus was coming to. But if there is repentance, if there is a heart change, there's also going to be an outward change. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. John, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers. <laughs> That's, few pastors start sermons with insulting people. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to, to from these stones, raise up children from Abraham. Even now, right now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked, well, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, whoever has two jackets, is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Then the tax collectors, they came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, what should we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So what's he saying? John is saying that there's gonna, if, if your heart has changed, if you're repentant, there's gonna be fruit in your life. Look at how he opens. It's almost like he, he opens with this message of repentance and that stings a little bit. But then he ups the pressure to sting even more. When he says brood of vipers, offspring of snakes, he's not just being insulting. He's not just like name calling. No, he is referring, John the Baptist is referring back to the ancient curse of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And you remember what he tells the snake? Remember what he tells Satan? He says, Satan, your offspring are gonna be at war hating the offspring of Eve. 
And one day, one of her offspring is going to crush your head. You're going to get you're going to get some licks in. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. What is John the Baptist saying? He's saying, he's looking at people and he's saying, you need to repent. And they're all like, well, I've got it together. And he goes, you're offspring of Satan. You're the seed. Jesus says the same thing. Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil. There is a dividing line here. He's looking at people on the shore and he's saying, there's some of you in the camp that are willing to repent and make way for the Lord in your heart. And I'm telling you, there's some of you on shore that not only do you need repentance, but you're ignoring it. You're actually classified as the very children of the devil. Like he could not be more insulting right now. And he's challenging them, make your decision. Who will you be today? Will you repent? If so, if you're repenting, Bear fruit, act like it. And then, they, and then he almost anticipates what they're going to say. See, they had this idea that just because they were descendants of Abraham, they were sort of like automatically in. They were, they were like, they were good. And he's saying, no, it has nothing to do with your heritage. God can make children of Abraham out of rocks. This has everything to do with your heart. Where do you stand? Will you repent of sin? Will you prepare the way? because he's coming. Listen to this. Even now, the ax is laid to the root. All those prophets of the Old Testament, they looked into this distant future to say, he's coming, but not now. He's coming, but not soon. And John the Baptist is the prophet that says, today, today, it's happening. Right now, in our lifetime, it's happening. The ax is laid to the root, and every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down into the fire. What's he saying about this coming Messiah? Can I tell you what he's not saying? He's not saying that Jesus just wants everyone to love each other. And all Jesus talked about was peace. No, he's saying that when this Messiah comes, he's going to be a judge. And he's going to draw hard polarizing, divisive, conclusive lines. And there's only two camps. There's no straddling the fence with this coming Messiah. He is prepared to do business. And anyone that is not with him is gonna be thrown into the fire. So the crowds are moved, they're rattled. Okay, well, what do we do? And notice, he just gets practical. He answers them, if you have two of something, if you're blessed, then be a blessing. And then, and then the soldiers and the tax collectors are like, well, what do we do? And he's like, just do your job honestly. Have integrity. Have fruit that reflects a heart of repentance. You say you repent, act like it. Do it outwardly. In verse 15, it says that all the people were in expectation. So elevate. What is it that you've been withholding yourself from doing that you know the Lord's calling you to do? Like, I hope, I hope that before tonight is done, you're willing to be confronted with your own sin. That maybe you're thinking through what you've been watching on your phone. That maybe you're remembering the way you disrespected your parent. The time that you had to lie to make yourself look good. Like, what, what are those things? 
Be willing to let the Lord come and straighten some roads, to fill in some cracks, to level down some things. My prayer for you has been throughout this whole sermon prep that the Lord revealed all of us our sin, that we would live lives of repentance and that, that being, having our sin revealed to us would make us hate our sin, would make us poor in spirit. And then it would roll into our actions reflecting a heart that has been filled by God coming to us. Verse 15, the people were in expectation. So John's mission was being accomplished. They were rattled. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Man. They're asking, John, is it you? Are you the guy? And John's like, this is his moment. He has waited his whole ministry to get to this question right here. And he's able to say it. It's not me, but he's coming. And I'm telling you, he's so, so great that I'm not even worthy to be a slave in his house to help take his shoes off. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. That is how much greater than me he is. And then John points out three kinds of baptism. John's baptism is a baptism for repentance. But this one that's coming, he is gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit or with fire. Again, Jesus came as a Messiah, as a prophet, as a savior, as a priest, as a king. But we can't forget that he also came as dividing line, as a judge. A winnowing fork for um, people that lived in Israel at the time, uh, every day about the same time in the afternoon, the, the Mediterranean Sea would change directions of the breeze and send the breeze in over the land. When we lived in Destin, it was the same thing. We always had a, a consistent breeze at the same time every day. And so wheat farmers would take advantage of this. They would crush up the wheat and then they would take a winnowing fork or a winnowing fan and they'd throw the wheat, the crushed wheat into the air and the breeze would blow the chaff, the stuff that was around the wheat seeds away and the heavier wheat seeds would fall back down and they could collect it. And the, sh the chaff, they would just gather it up and burn it up. It was, it was useless now. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, this Messiah is going to come and the wheat he's going to gather into his barn. Those are his people, the repentant. But the chaff, he's going to baptize with unquenchable fire. This is, this is hard stuff. John the Baptist was not the kind of guy that you like joke around with. He was intense because he had a very clear mission. Look at this in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to people. <laughs> like, good news? Is that really how this is classified? This does not sound like good news. This is terrifying. But Elevate, I want you to hear me clearly. The good news of our gracious, merciful God begins with the bad news of justice. 
it begins with a recognition that we need, we desperately need a Savior. And it's so sweetly followed by a God whose front quality is a God of mercy, a God of love. And so may we confront our sin. May we confront our sin with the eyes of a living, holy God who hates sin. May it move us to be poor in spirit. May it move us to hate our sin. May it move us in meekness to hunger for for righteousness so that it prepares the way for the Lord to come into us. It does this little foreshadowing to verses 19 and 20 that Herod, who we know from the opening verses, is going to arrest John. Now verse 21. Now when all the people... All those who were repentant, all of them, when they were baptized, and when Jesus, Jesus suddenly shows up in our story, when Jesus was also had been baptized and was praying, get this, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. What's the voice say? You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is beautiful that Luke puts this immediately after chapter two, because in chapter two, 12-year-old Jesus makes this crazy declaration that the temple is his father's house, that Yahweh is his father and the temple is his house. This 12-year-old impertinent kid says this, and it was shocking. Jesus will later say that God is his father, and they'll try to stone him for it because it's making himself equal with God. And right here, following the story of 12-year-old Jesus, Jesus is validated by God himself. You know what's really cool? Is that if you look up the phrase that the heavens were opened in the Bible, you'll find it in Matthew at the baptism story, probably because Luke talked to Matthew or read the gospel of Matthew for his own. But it's found two other places. Once in Genesis, when it says that God opened the heavens and it rained, during the Noah's Ark story. Get this one. The second one is in Ezekiel chapter one. Oh, running out of time. This is so good. Go check it out. Ezekiel, read Ezekiel one, chapter one and Ezekiel chapter two. Three things happen. When God speaks to Ezekiel and calls Ezekiel into his prophetic ministry, the first thing it says in Ezekiel chapter one, verse one, is it says the heavens were opened. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, it tells you what it looks like when the heavens are open, which we don't get here. So let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. You want to find out what it looked like? Go check that out. Then it says in Ezekiel chapter 1, the very last verse, verse 23, it says that God spoke. Then in Ezekiel 2, it says that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Three things. The heavens are opened. God speaks, anointed by the Holy Spirit. We are intentionally supposed to see that Jesus is the new Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a shadow of what was to come. Jesus is stepping into his prophetic ministry. This is why. Bear with me. He is supposed to reflect Ezekiel because Ezekiel had a very, very clear ministry to a certain people at a certain time for a certain reason. Ezekiel, chapter one, verse one, says that he was among the exiles. This is so cool, guys. He was among the exiles. The Israelites had become so sinful that God punished them by bringing in Babylon 
to wipe out Jerusalem and the temple and drug the Israelites out of their country as slaves to Babylon. And Ezekiel is given a ministry to minister and speak on God's behalf to those exiles while in slavery. And he says in chapter two that Ezekiel is gonna have to speak to a rebellious people. And they may hear him and they may not, but a prophet by God has been sent. Let's turn our our page to Luke chapter four. Jesus goes and he's in the synagogue and he opens up Isaiah and he reads a passage that he says is about him. This is Luke chapter four and Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. Let's look in verse 18. Luke chapter four, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, reference to his baptism and the anointing like what happened with Ezekiel, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set to liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Jesus had a ministry also to people who were in slavery, but it was not a physical slavery. It was people in a desert wilderness of their heart, who were enslaved to sin. And Jesus is called in a similar prophetic ministry, except greater, not to a physical people for a physical time, but to all people for all time, as a savior to pull people out of spiritual slavery, out of sin, out of darkness. And Jesus at the cross would defeat sin, and at the grave he would defeat death. And as the light of the world, he would defeat darkness, because he was the word from God. God himself, with a forerunner, who prepared the way of people's hearts has come to set captives free. And God said, this is my son. I delight in him. I think that we all have a temptation to set up kings in our hearts. People have tried to follow other messiahs. They've tried to follow other religions, other little G gods of their own making. And I think that many of us, if we were to do a little bit of an x-ray on ourselves and we took a look at the throne in our hearts, I think most of us would see ourselves sitting there. But that throne is far too big for us. We're like a child who would usurp a king. There is one king, one Messiah, one priest who is worthy to sit on the throne of every heart in this room and he is worthy to sit on every heart of everyone who's ever drawn breath. And I challenge you to look inward. And if you see anyone but the rightful owner of that throne sitting in your heart to repent, If you've given your life to the Lord, if you see a sin, if you see a crooked place in the road of your heart, repent. Because Jesus came for you to proclaim liberty to me and to you. He came to set us free. He is a God of grace and mercy. Elevate, prepare your hearts.
through being poor in spirit, through being repentant. Throw your arms open for God who's waiting. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word tonight. It is not an easy word. Oh, but Lord, it is a beautiful gospel. It is good news that the God of creation would so love us that he would, that you would visit us, that you would transform our hearts to be yours. Lord, we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't get our house together like someone trying to get ready for guests. We can't do it. We have to go out on the front lawn and meet you where you are and say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I have to have you come into my house and to do it for me. And Lord, I pray that anyone in this room that's trying to fix themselves that are trying to tidy up a house that's been burned beyond recognition would come out and fall at your feet and welcome you in because you and only you can take a wretch and make a son and take a sinner and make a daughter. Lord, we give you this time. Bless our e-groups. Lead the leaders Open up our minds and our hearts for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.